So many life stories start at Ford. My grandfather started in 1918 as an hourly worker, and there's so many more. Like my next guest, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He's the chief medical correspondent for CNN. He's also a neurosurgeon and the son of two Ford engineers. This is probably my mom's proudest moment. <laughs> I mean, I, I say that uh, a little bit tongue in cheek, but I think her connection to Ford and her pride for Ford or pride for someone like you is enormous. It's, uh, it's her whole life. I'm Jim Farley and this is Drive. It's an incredible story, and I and I want to summarize it a little bit. But my mom was born on the other side of the world in the subcontinent of India, and she was five years old when the partition happened, when the when the subcontinent was divided, and it was the largest human mass migration in the history of the world. Millions of people died. You know, it was it was awful. And she was swept up in that as a five-year-old, you know, ended up being on these cargo ships, going to what is now India, living as a refugee, uh, you know, for about 12 years. And in the midst of that, two things happened. One is that India was trying to become this engineering capital in that part of the world. So the prime minister was going around to schools and encouraging students to go into engineering. And he was at my mom's school and he wasn't doing this for, you know, young kids. And he said, I'm talking to all the boys out there and the girls. And it was the first time there was this sort of acceptance that girls could do this as well. And for him, it was maybe like a casual utterance. But for my mom, it was, I'm going to be an engineer one day. Mm. And it's a refugee wow. saying that. Wow. And she read a book about Henry Ford also while in that camp. And, you know, it's funny because you see these biographies and you think, okay, you read this to become more knowledgeable. There are people who read these biographies and it changes their entire life. They yeah. become the person they most closely identify with. So I'll tell you, a refugee in a newly formed country reads a book about Henry Ford and decides she will one day work at Ford. That's, that's, that's the tease, I guess, to the story. But it's incredible. She's a superstar. My mom has a lot of audacity, you know, it, 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 by the way, translates in other parts of her life, even her parenting and, and all of that. So it, it's pretty hard in our household to say, I can't do that. Mm. Oh, excuse me. You, 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 you can't, you can't do that. Impressive. You can't mow the lawn. You, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Pretty funny. So, I mean, how did that impact you in a way? I mean, outside of, you know, I know your dad. They met here and, yeah. you know, family starts and grew up in Michigan. But how did that affect you in terms of your professional choices and you, the way you look at life? Well, I think there was two two major things. One is, first of all, my mom and dad met in Michigan as my mom was driving through Ann Arbor. And interestingly enough, her car broke down. Wasn't a Ford at that time, mm -hmm. by the way. And um, and my dad was an engineering student and he was damsel in distress, you know, <laughs> hero to the rescue. And, and that's how they met. So th that was significant because at that time, frankly, most marriages among, among Indians were arranged um, or strongly introduced. So to have, quote unquote, a love marriage in the 60s in the United States among two Indians was unusual, but that became part of their identity, I see. you know, in terms of really being open. My friends would go to my parents 
for dating advice when I was growing up. <laughs> well, that's amazing. And then the other thing was, I think again with a you know a mom who doesn't take I can't for an answer, you, there's things that you would scratch off the list early in life. Like I you know I'm not going to pursue that. I'm not going to. That's that's not in my my reach. You know, when you have a mom like my mom, there's nothing that you don't potentially strive for. I guess it doesn't mean you get everything. Don't don't get me wrong. But why wouldn't you do that? Try that. Yeah, just go for it. Why not? You know that was always her sort of approach. And so the the brakes were off to use a car analogy. So you did you know that you wanted to go into the medical field early in your life? I read that you were like pointing towards medical school when you were in high school. Yeah. So the program that I was in was called um, Inaflex, and and this was a program at the University of Michigan that I think it was about forty students, if I remember, every year would be accepted directly in the medical school out of high school. So you still had to do two or three years of, of college, but you were in, you were into, into medical school. And, you know, I, it, it, was, it was a great program, but here's the, here's the thing, and I, this is the first part of your question, and I wonder if this applies to you as well, is that I was pretty sure I wanted to be a doctor, um, but to be totally honest, you know, I was 16 years old. And, and I don't like, I think that neither your life experience nor your brain development is adequate to be able to say what you want to do for sure. Cause I know you really wanted to do cars really early in your life. You, you had a, people would call that a calling toward yeah. that, yeah, which I think true. is a really true thing. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but like I have kids now that are at that age and, and I say to myself, you, you have not, there's no way you haven't seen enough of the world yet. You haven't experienced enough things yet to know that that's your calling. You, you, there could be things you've not even seen. And, you know, your brains don't really fully develop until sort of mid-20s. So to have all that executive functioning and put it all together and say, this is what I want to do. I don't know that you can say that for sure until, you know, early 20s. So they were forcing us to make a decision pretty early in life. Right. And, but it was, it was an impossible thing to say no to in a way. You know, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a doctor and this got me into medical school right out of high school. Why wouldn't I do that? I completely relate to what you just said. You know, my dad was a banker and we had a good life because of his job. But, you know, I wasn't sure either, even though I loved cars. Like I, I actually was worried personally. I don't know if you ever felt this way. I was worried that my love of cars would be destroyed by going into the car business because it's a business. And I actually just love cars. So I, I went to IBM first. It's like, great job. My parents are really proud. And I was still like reading car driver and going, working on my car on the weekend. And then I, I worked in between graduate school, uh, two years. I, I worked at JP Morgan in corporate finance, which I absolutely hated. <laughs> it was like, but they were totally excited. And I was like, no. Nah. Was your dad excited for you at this point? Yeah. I mean, what was your... He was really excited. He's like, this is great. My son's going to, yeah. you know, follow my footsteps. And <laughs> right. um, I did the... I, I actually told my parents I'm going to go work for not just any car company, but for Toyota. My dad fought in World War II. So you can imagine what that was wow. like. And my mom was from Michigan, wow. like you. And she's like, what am I supposed to say to my family? Right. And um, now people laugh about it. 
you know, but back then, like my, my family was ashamed of me. That's, that's, and, so, um, I would not have put that together, Jim. That's so interesting. So, but I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent what you just said. Uh, and as a father, I'm conflicted about it because like you, you and I, we had kind of a calling and not everyone gets the phone call. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, your story turned out great, but I'm sure there's a lot of people who make that decision early in life and it may not be the right thing for them. Yeah. So, so how did you know, like, at what point did you say, you know what, I'm really glad I made that choice. Um, I, I think that I'm, I'm by nature a very skeptical person. Mm -hmm. So I'm always, I'm, I'm not suspicious, I'm skeptical. So I, I, I'm always looking for, in some ways I find my motivation by looking at things that are not quite right and trying to fix them. That's, that's how I find the motivation sometimes. And so I was always sort of looking at like, is this really what I wanna do? You know, there was never sort of the, the absolute, uh, this is it moment until I, until I got into my training, I think. You know, during medical school, I saw a lot of my friends who were not in medical school, who were off living their lives. I mean, after medical school, I did seven more years of training. Right. And so during that time, you're giving up, you know, more than a decade of your life. And I, when I say give up, I mean, and it's formative years. So most yes. people, yes. especially in surgery, are not getting married, not having kids. Some are, but most are not. So <laughs> there was doubts then as well, but I love it now. You know, that, that's the thing. I really do love it. I, I continue to operate. And I'm sure there's things in your life that you continue to do that you do it out of just pure love and sure. being in the operating room. Part of it is frankly, just the athletic part of it, the movement part I of it. I see, I see. It, it, Surgery is a very, in some ways, a very athletic field because you're, it demands a lot of you physically. And, I, and I've always drawn to that. And so- it's fun. So I, I, I think I knew probably the time I really started training. So where did the, um, I don't want to fast forward too much, but where did the vision come from to democratize medicine? Because before you, you know, one could argue that it was kind of like a mysterious technical world of doctors and you have totally changed all of our lives by democratizing, you know, so much information. How did that, is that, was it an organic process or was that yeah. more like, I'm going to just do this? Well, you know, it's, it's a, I appreciate the question. It's, it's interesting. Sometimes things just sort of happen mm -hmm. and then you, you almost get time to reflect on it. It's journey afterwards. It wasn't so strategic. So if you go back to the time frame in this country, this is the mid-90s now. I'm a resident in neurosurgery. There's a lot of changes happening in healthcare. A lot of it involving, you know, employer-based healthcare. So, you know, the auto industry really, really part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. But who wasn't part of the conversation were often doctors, clinicians, people who were working in hospitals, nurses even. And so I started writing more and more about health policy. And that was the original idea was that there's big things happening in healthcare. It's really important, you know, in terms of how we move forward as a nation. And so if I would write on behalf of clinicians uh, a bit. And that I worked at the White House for a while. This is in the late 90s, primarily doing domestic policy and speech writing, um, a lot of it around healthcare issues. And ultimately, when I started up uh, in journalism, I thought the idea was that's what I would be reporting on. I see. You know, Okay. That was going to be kind of a healthcare policy wonk, but that was August of 2001 when I started. 
And three weeks later, 9-11 happens. Mm. And all of a sudden, these guys at CNN are saying to me, hey, look, we're probably not going to be talking about healthcare policy for a while. Um, but now you're the only doctor working at an international news network in the middle of what's happening in the world. Do you want to go tell some of those stories, report on that? And I, and I did. Um, so I was in New York, you know, uh, after the attacks, remember anthrax in October of that year. Mm. And then I covered the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq on the ground. That was not part of the plan <laughs> to go from healthcare policy guy to that sort of thing. But that was within a few months of my life. So I that see. was very... It's a very rapid transformative time for me. And how did you make the transition from being a subject matter expert mm. as a surgeon to speaking to millions and millions of people around the globe about the human body and the medical industry in areas outside of your expertise that you spent decades preparing for? Well, you know, I think that in some ways, how I always saw myself a little bit. And, you know, and I'm married. I got three kids, three dogs. We live in a neighborhood, lots of neighbors, lots of friends, just to paint a picture for you. And oftentimes I was the only doc in the neighborhood. So every every backyard barbecue was filled <laughs> with questions about, you know, rashes. And, you know, it's amazing what people will share with you. Yeah, yeah. you know? But in some ways, when I started doing the more consumer-facing sort of reporting uh, on television, I sort of saw it that way. You know, I'm I'm informed because I read all the time and I went to medical school and I did my training. So I had this fund of knowledge, but then the presentation was all often like I'd be talking to friends at a barbecue, you know? And so really being able to do the same thing, but to a larger audience. And I think that was not just the content, but the style a little bit. Um, yes. You know, there was, there was always this idea that you wanted to emulate somebody. If you watch television, it's going to be Stone Phillips, you know, with the, this kind of really upright posture and the perfect enunciation. And I was just never that guy. Um, I speak and run on sentences. I garble my words sometimes. Yeah. And I remember somebody saying to me once, it's okay, <laughs> you know, just be you. And uh, I thought that was, that was pretty liberating. So given this change in your life, you know, medical, then kind of window into all medicine for millions of us, um, did you ever have opportunities you said no to? Yes. Yes, for sure. Um, at one point, I remember uh, within the media world, there was a opportunity to do what's called a syndicated show where you're basically doing a show, but then it's syndicated in these various markets. And what I realized was that that was a departure for me. That was not what I loved about the job that I now had was this ability to, to report on things and to go learn about those things. And I was like, that's, just, that's cool. It's like this really interesting lifelong learning. I'm walking into a subject area I know nothing about. And because of the job, I get to talk to the foremost person in the field on this. And it's pretty cool, yes. you know? I mean, if you're a curious person, being a journalist is the best job in the world, I, I think, see. for sure. So that was one opportunity. I think the other thing was that people sometimes will view you as a person who is articulate and wants you for spokesperson-type jobs, forward-facing public sort of jobs within companies. So some of those job offers came about. And again, that was a departure 
that w- wasn't really what I was enjoying doing. The, the other thing that I think you may know, I think we may have talked about, is that President Obama offered me the job of Surgeon General, and which I strongly considered because I really do like public service. And I had worked in the White House before, and it was a really, um, I, I loved that time of my life. But it wasn't the right job at the right time for me. By the way, I learned you can't practice surgery if you're the Surgeon General. <laughs> really? Which seems like a misnomer to me, yeah. for sure. I had no idea. Most surgeons general were either retired when they took the job or they were not surgeons. And you you love that. Yeah, I still practice. And if I left the job for eight years to go be surgeon general, you'd have to retrain in neurosurgery. And I was in my 30s. I didn't, I didn't think it was the right thing. I don't know about you, but as I gotten older and said no to opportunities, I've started to trust my gut more. Hmm when you do the pros and cons or whatever yeah. process you use. Did, did you, yeah. do you have an intuition? Let, let's say, uh, you know, the White House calls you, President Obama calls you and says, you know, this is something the country needs you. Did you, did that intuition light up or what was this, how do you process a decision like that? Yeah, it's really, it's really, it's hard, I mm-hmm. think. And now as a father of three teenagers, I find myself trying to gently help them process certain decisions in their life, the the, the bigger magnitude decisions of this age life for them. Um, I think that, you know, I, and this I think may come from my mom again. And, and like there was other opportunities that arose for her. She's a very smart person. She was in Germany for a while. She was could have had a big manufacturing sort of lead job there. And they needed money. My mom came from a very poor place. She was a refugee. But she had the mission. And I think that there's a certain joy when you know that the decision is laid out for you because you're just staying true to your core mission. So, you know, being able to, as you say, democratize medicine for people to report on these things and to continue to practice surgery, anything that deviated from that mission was, it was more, excluding those things with a smile and also recognizing that, look, if life were infinite, we'd all do lots of different things probably in our life, but we have one life to live and this is how, you know, you choose to spend it. Got it. Well, I have to turn to a topic that I not had the opportunity to talk to someone like you about. And I, I kind of want to get it off my chest and get your perspective, which is autonomous cars. So I've watched this fascination for the last five years now on a car that drives itself. And as I got into the technology as a car person, the human brain has become more mm. amazing to me, the human body, because if if you were to go to, you know, Waymo or Cruise, some of the best autonomous car technology today, it would cost, I would say, somewhere between a half a million to $2 million to produce a car that can not even see as well as we can, to process information, then to make the decision, and then to, once a decision is made, to actually instruct the car to do what it uh, can do. And I'm watching my 15-year-old kid (laughs) learn how to drive (laughs) with maybe some electrolytes and, and his human body, but... I'm just absolutely blown away that the more I learned about how we can even get slightly close to a human brain, an undistracted brain, <laughs> um, yeah, right. that like how 
freaking expensive it is with all the tech we have today to even get like 1% of where a 15-year-old could do. Does that surprise you or not? Um, the, the, the brain is, I think, arguably the most enigmatic, mysterious three and a half pounds of tissue that exists anywhere in the universe. <laughs> and, and I use the word mysterious on, on purpose because if you were to actually just look at the processing speed and, and capacity and things like that, things that we're used to measuring one thing and comparing one thing to another, there's no measurement for it, you know? I see. And then you use this word intuition earlier. Yes. Um, like where does intuition lie in the brain? When you make a snap decision, like your 15 year old deciding to veer a little left versus veer right, that snap decision is based on millions and millions of inputs It'd be like counting, you know, grains of sand on the beach to, to quantify those inputs. But there's so many of them that went into, I'm going to just turn my handle to the left here. I, I, what I would say about autonomous vehicles is that I don't think you need that sort of capacity in order to propel a car down the road yeah. and do it safely. But I think the real question, and I've had this conversation with lots of people about autonomous vehicles, specifically AI in general, is this always going to be a trust but verify model? Like, I'll trust this device to do certain things. But when it comes to making a medical decision, when it comes to keeping me safe from a car accident, do I trust it completely? And, and if not, then how do we, how do we implement a, a really seamless trust but verify model? Like, you know, how do you, the car is about to make a big decision. Like, how does it quickly alert you that, da -da -da, and then you can weigh in quickly? You don't have to, you know, most of the time you can be in cruise control, but that means you can't not be there and be present and engaged. Like, people expect these things to be infallible, but by its very definition, they cannot be infallible. So how yes. do you reduce the chance of uh, fallibility as much as possible? And there lies in one of the most difficult human problems for us to solve, uh, which is how do you notify a driver that they need to make a decision or need to re-engage when they're right. when they're streaming content or doing something else yeah. and their eyes are off? It's it's kind of interesting to, to hear people how they how they are processing this. I just want to tell you one thing, just along those lines. I, again, I mentioned I have three teenagers. When they were getting to be driving age, um, I asked them all, I said, would you rather you get a car and you drive that car or would you rather I give you a pretty generous Uber account? Yes. And you just be, they don't go a lot of places. So I thought that would be pretty, you know, pretty good. And they get driven and they all wanted to drive. Interesting. They all wanted to drive. There is, they could be driven. And yet there is this, this part of culture, I think, even for my kids, I have three teenage girls, even for them, that they driving and having that control over this thing, this, this hunk of metal propelling, you know, 75 miles an hour down the road it is, is there's a, there's a cultural sort of attachment affinity to it. And I think that's, I mean, maybe at some point it's, it's like, I don't want to drive anymore, but I don't, I don't see that happening yet. They're friends and my girls and all their friends want to drive. They want to actually be behind the wheel. So I have to ask, what do you drive every day? So I, we're very proud of our Bronco Wild Track. Oh, good. All right. I love that car. Built in Michigan here. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm not just saying this because you're you're yeah. here, but it's funny because we we also have a navigator. Uh, my wife does have a BMW. Yep. And um, and then my daughter has a Toyota 4Runner. Great. The Bronco is the favorite car of the house, though. I I'm mean, glad to hear it's that. It's my car. It was, yeah. I, I got it for my birthday last year. And, you know, it's it's funny because we get the nicest comments on this car. It's kind of like having a puppy. You, know, you walk <laughs> around with a puppy, everyone wants to talk to you. Yeah. You drive a Bronco and everyone wants to ask about it. Well, thank you for your business. And that'll help my teenager get through college and a lot of yeah. other hundreds of thousands of people at Ford. So thank you for that choice. Yeah. And I have to ask whether it's from your mom or dad or you or your kids or your friends, it doesn't matter. Do you have any advice for me as the head of Ford? Oh, um, wow. Gosh, I hope my mom's listening right now that I, her son, <laughs> the, the, the son of a refugee on the other side of the world is being asked to maybe give any advice. Um, whew, that's, that's a, I, 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 you know, I guess one thing that I would say is kind of going back to the fact that we both have teenage kids is this is, this is maybe more general advice, but I think it really does apply. And that is that I think the pace at which the world changed for much of my parents' life was extremely fast for what it was at the time, but now in retrospect, super slow. And things are moving so quickly, things that you think would be either generational or at least five, 10 years before you're gonna see significant change seemingly can happen overnight now because of the way that this next generation of kids' brains work. So I think, you know, the, the being, we're going to have cars. I mean, my kids want to drive cars. Yep. They're going to want cars. That's going to be a mode of transportation for some time to come. But I think in terms of how you're thinking about being kind to the planet, and that's, it's not only makes sense as a fellow citizen of the world, but frankly, it's also what the kids want. The yep. kids are like, man, you guys trashed our house. Yeah. We're going to have to fix it up for a while. And one of the ways to do that is to be driving a lot of electric cars, which I know you guys are thinking about. And it's tough to transition into that market. It, you, you take losses. It's kind of like TV. We're not making money on digital yet. yet. We know digital is the future, right. you know, streaming and digital, not making any money there yet, but we got to invest in it. I think it's probably the same sort of thing with, with EVs. And um, yeah. You are so right, because I'll give you an example of statistic, just being a car person. A couple of years ago, we took a flyer on using the batteries in the vehicles, especially our trucks, to, to be exportable power, to, to power someone's home with your F-150. Mm -hmm. We had no idea people were, my goodness, when the Texas flood happened in Houston, yeah. our pro-power board sales took off, and now... 10% of all F-150 sales are hybrid. And I bet you next year, the F-150 hybrid will be the best-selling hybrid in the US because of these extreme weather events and the grid's instability. Actually, I did not know much of that. And the idea that you, you sort of found another really significant need and, and were able to service that need, and in the process that increased the sales of these hybrid vehicles. Yes. I mean, I guess that's how change happens sometimes. Change doesn't happen by just telling people to do it and charging them more money for it. Correct. It, it happens because of this other use you found. It's like three people in, in some engineering lab, you know, who totally changed the company. I mean, that's the truth in our business. Yeah. Uh, and I, I hope that people realize that electrification is not 
at just simply propulsion. It's actually more compelling than that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of other cool things we can do to address their new reality. Well, thank you for encouraging me and all the employees at Ford. And, well, I, with with humility, uh, for sure. Just you know, to be to be clear, Jim, I you know, but we're a car family, so I appreciate the question. Well, there is no better example of America and, and Ford than your wonderful family and everything you've accomplished. Thank you for what you do for all of our families, and I so enjoyed listening and learning from you. Thank you. Uh, and please thank your mom and your I dad will. for all their service at Ford. And, and we, we're building a company on their shoulders. Thank you for saying that. And I really hope that, um, I hope that we can come up there and visit with you sometime. It'd be very emotional, I think. I would insist on it. I will give yeah. you the Cook's tour with your mom and dad. And uh, I'd love to um, have Bill Ford do that too. Wow, that'd be incredible. We'll take you up on that. It'll be the probably the most important moment in our life. So next to my birth and my brother's birth. But after that, Check. you and Bill Ford. <laughs> we'll do it. All right. Well, thank you so much for the time, Sanjay. And I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. You. Drive is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise. Our production staff includes Julia Natt, Eva Walchover, and Kristen Muller, with help from Lori Arpin, Krista Gentile, Max Owen Dunell, Catherine Sanders, Darnell Macon, and Mark Truby. Our host is Jim Farley, and this is Drive.